Hello, hello. It's it's me. It's just Laura this week. I am going to start occasionally doing these solo episodes. I realized I've had three podcasts. This is my third, and I've never done an episode alone. I've always had a co-host or a person that I'm interviewing, and it's something that I've wanted to try. I did a you know, very formal survey of my in my newsletter <laughs> and asked people if they were interested in that type of thing and got some topic suggestions too. And so here we are. I'll be doing these occasionally. It'll be just me riffing on an idea that I am thinking about. And the topic for this one was very easy to choose because it's something I have been really fair to say I've been obsessed with it for the better part of the last year and even prior to that. So it's around social media. I have, I have tried, uh, you know, we all know, we've heard, we've seen the, the documentaries at this point. We've all, you know, read the stats. We know that social media is linked to anxiety and depression and <clears throat> that, you know, we, we all, anyone that I talk to about it is like, oh yeah, it, you know, it, it has this effect on me, but I've noticed that not, not all, but in most cases, it doesn't really change people's behavior. They're still on there. And I recently took myself off, and I'll talk about that later in the episode. But I've been really, I, I'm obsessed with it like I was obsessed with alcohol and getting sober from alcohol and the bigger picture of alcohol in our culture back in 2013, 14, 15, as I was getting sober. And this feels very much the same. I, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop wondering about it. So I'm just going with that. And I have what I want, what I'm trying to understand is what is it exactly? Like we know, I know at a high level, you know, it's, it's comparison and it's, um, you know, things that I've written about the having a, a circle of concern that's far too big for us to manage cognitively and, uh, the shaming that people do, sort of depersonalization and all of that. But I want to dig deeper. I want to know more. I want to really pull it apart and pull on these these threads. So this episode is about one aspect that I'm sort of working over, turning over in my mind right now that has uh, come to light in really the past week. It's sort of gelled because of a few conversations that I've had and a few different ideas coming together. It's like, ah, okay, this is a major part of it. So that's what I'm going to be sharing today. So our tale begins with me. Well, actually my daughter. She is 12 years old right now, Alma. Uh, she's entering junior high this week, seventh grade, and it's a new school. Seventh and eighth grade is junior high, just like it was for me. And Alma has not asked me to come sleep with her uh, in her bed for a long for a long time for for over a year. Her and I shared a bed when her dad and I separated and got divorced uh, back in 2012. And we just shared a bed, even though she had her own room, we shared a bed. And when I moved in with my boyfriend, when we moved in, it kind of coincided with this, the perfect timing of her wanting her own space and starting to be <laughs> repelled by my very existence. And so she has been sleeping in her own bed happily. But this past week, she asked me to come. She knocked on my door in the middle of the night and asked me to come sleep with her four different nights. 
So I was like, okay, what's going on here? And it, it didn't take me long to figure out like, oh, this is about, this is about school anxiety going into junior high. One of the nights, the last one where she asked me to come sleep with her, she, we didn't just, I didn't just go in there and, you know, we fall asleep right away. She wanted to talk and she talked for an hour and a half. And I usually would shut that down because sleep is, uh, I, I need my sleep. I don't mess around with my sleep. <clears throat> and plus I'm not awake at, you know, I'm not, I'm not really prepared for conversation at two in the morning, but I could tell she had, she just needed to say these things and vomit them out of her mouth and process. And it was all about her friends, social connections. What if this, what if that, this is what this person's doing. This is what that person's doing. This is who I am. You know, really like all the things that she's, she's talking about a lot in the, during the day, but it was like concentrated, you know, anxiety and excitement, uh, all coming out at once. <clears throat> so I didn't shut it down because I could tell she needed it. And also, <clears throat> I know exactly what it's like. I, for me, junior high, even high school, and even, even college, but especially junior high, was I hated it. I hated it. I was not comfortable. I was anxious all the time. And it was, oh God, I had so much anxiety. I, so I've been thinking about that. It was, it was really all about managing all the social connections and being so acutely aware of where I stood, where other people stood, the sort of social hierarchies. I was never someone that didn't care. I always cared a lot. And to a degree, I think that's completely normal. It's part of that process of, of that part of life, right? Some people care more than others. I cared the most. And it made me so extraordinarily uncomfortable every day all the time. What what my daughter was doing in the middle of the night was what I did 24-7, all through junior high, all through high school, with very little break. <laughs> there was very little rest that I felt in those times. Um, I was just so aware and I was never pretty enough or funny enough or sexual enough or confident enough. I was never, you know, I didn't have boyfriends. I was a late bloomer in that way. I didn't really know what to do. And I was part of the, I was always part of the popular group. And that came with its own, like it came with its own sort of pressures. Like I was supposed to know how to do those things. I was supposed to know how to act and be, and I, and I didn't. So I performed all the time. I learned how to perform really, really well. And it was exhausting. Uh, okay. So that, that was me. <laughs> and I, this, this became highlighted because of what Alma did the other night and, and all these other things that I've been thinking about. So there was that. And then enter alcohol in high school. And I realized that it was, it was like the superpower. Uh, when I drank it over, you know, it overrode my anxiety, that part of me that was always on and had my antenna up and was trying to manage all these things. And then it also allowed these things to come forth within me. I could just be this person that I, that was pretty enough or funny enough or sexual enough or confident enough in those moments. And that was such a relief. So last week, coincidentally, I talked to doc, Dr. Anna Lemke. She she is the medical director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine 
program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship. She's a really big deal at Stanford, as you can tell. And she uh, is this wonderful, wonderful woman and wrote a book that just came out last week called Dopamine Nation. And it's all about really addiction um, and the role that dopamine plays. And we had this conversation. I got her book and was able to dig into a little bit of it. Uh, And one of the things that I found was where she introduces this concept of the false self versus the true self, which I don't, I hadn't heard of this before. It was introduced by uh, Winnicott in the 1960s. He was a psychoanalyst. And the idea is that we create the true self is the most spontaneous um, sort of natural expression of who we are. Babies come out only really expressing their true selves. You know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I want to be held, I want to be put to sleep. They don't think if they're, they they don't cognitively say, okay, if I do this, I'll get my needs met, right? They just do. And what happens is over time, if needs aren't being met, by our true self, expression of our true self, we create false, a false self or many false selves. And some of this is natural and necessary you know, to function in society. You create a certain persona that you present at work, say, or in certain groups of people. But the problem is that this creation of a false self sometimes eclipses or overshadows the true self and the true self gets lost. The The true self is never accessed. The false self is the one running the show all the time. I can say without a doubt, that was me. I had created, and I've written about this in my book so much. It's been a central part. I, I, I've understood it you know, in sobriety as a central part of my story. I didn't, I didn't really get that before I got sober, but I created a self that was more seemingly pleasing to other people that would ensure my connections were established and maintained, that I was more liked, that I was all of the things that I thought I needed to be. And some of that is very real. We don't do it because we're deceptive liars. We do it just like every other adaptive behavior to keep our attachments, to get our needs met. So Anna introduced me to this false self-concept. I'm going to read a, a little line from her book. According to Winnicott, the false self is a self-constructed persona in defense against intolerable external demands and stressors. Winnicott postulated that the creation of the false self can lead to feelings of profound emptiness. As Gertrude Stein said, there is no there there. I felt that when I read it. (laughs) I felt that. And she says, when our lived experience diverges from our projected image, we are prone to feel detached and unreal, as fake as the false images we've created. Psychiatrists call this feeling derealization and depersonalization. Okay, so that's a little foreshadowing into where I'm going. When I, all through my late late teens, really all my life, I can say late teens, 20s, most of my 30s, my false self was running the show, false selves, and alcohol really held that up. Alcohol held it up. It allowed it to happen. It kept at bay the pain of being detached from a true self. And then in 2014, when I got sober, I started reconnecting, connecting, learning who this 
true Laura was, who this true self was. And that, I remember feeling like, uh, I didn't know how much alone time I needed. I didn't know that I actually really hate big social situations or even, you know, smaller ones. I didn't realize that socializing was so extraordinarily exhausting to me. I didn't know how much alone time I needed. I didn't, like I did know, but I had pushed that part of me so far down and so far away. And I thought in the early years of getting sober that I just needed to recover from all that, you know, that uh, outward energy I had expended towards socializing and drinking and, and all of that. And it's, it wasn't just a recovery period. It turns out that's just who I am. Seven years later, I need, I'm continually amazed at how much alone time I need, how little tolerance I have for socializing more than say two hours, how deep of a inner life I have and how how extraordinarily important it is for me to connect with that and and be in that and and so on and so forth so 2014 right I got sober this has been an ongoing process of really practicing honesty and Anna talks about in her book how practicing radical honesty is really about sorting out the authentic self and becoming the the true self and and letting go of the narratives of the false self and that 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 is a process that is so so paramount in recovery so crucial and that has been my experience too i didn't have that language for it but i ha i have known and have written about extensively the importance of learning to tell the truth and telling the truth and how to me, sobriety, that has been the central process of sobriety. And something that if I get far away from that, I become very unwell very fast. Okay, so I got, so I got um, sober in 2014 and at the same time started to really use social media. <clears throat> I created my business Facebook page for writing and sharing, you know, my my thoughts around the things that I was writing about at the time, mostly related to getting sober and addiction in 2014. I started my Instagram account which was different than my personal account. I don't have a personal Instagram account anymore, but I did. And I, I started it more as a, uh, it was about sobriety. It was about, it, it beca has become, it is what is now as I would say my business uh, Instagram account. And I have been, I've been someone who used uh, social media really from the beginning when Facebook started in 2007, but the, the personal side of, my personal account on Facebook is never really, it's never really dragged me into a dark place. I, I don't pay much attention to it. I haven't paid a ton of attention to it ever, really. But the, the business one, because I can't really say there's a business one and a personal one. <laughs> you know, and my, my personal life is so intertwined with my work that it would be disingenuous to say that they're that different. Okay, so I started building these platforms in 2014, and it's seven years later now, and I had a Facebook page that had about 30,000 followers. I deactivated that six months ago or more deleted it. And I never really used Twitter. It to me was like, I, I, I'm so glad, <laughs> but 
Twitter was like, oh, hell no, I can't, I, there's, I, this is too much, I can't manage it. So luckily I never fell into the Twitter toilet, but Instagram, I uh, built, you know, close to $80,000, 80,000 $80, people uh, follow, as a following there. And, you know, it's, it would be a total lie to say, to, to disentangle my social media uh, accounts from my ability to move into a different career, to get a foothold in writing, becoming an author. I don't know that how, how responsible my engagement there is for the fact that I was able to get a publishing deal, the fact that I was able to eventually switch careers. I don't know how important that was in in those how much of a factor social media was but it's it's in there for sure so there is obviously a lot of good that has come from it and over the course i would say i, I started writing about it in 2018 that's when i first wrote about the ills of social media on my mental health and again in 2019, 2020, and then this year. So I started to notice that it was a problem for me, but I, I didn't, it took me, I can say now four years to really extract myself. And I didn't feel like it was an option. And I know a lot of people don't feel like it is, it's an option to back out of it or want to. I know, I know people don't have the same experience that I do. But I think a lot of people do have the same experience, but they either feel trapped by it or, you know, they need it for their business um, or they just they just don't otherwise know how if or how they could get off. OK, but I but I digress. So. The back to this false self concept. I want to read you another part of what Anna wrote in her book. She says, the antidote to the false self is the authentic self. Radical honesty is a way to get there. It tethers us to our existence and makes us feel real in the world. Okay, I want to say that again. It tethers us to our existence. So. I don't know if you've had this feeling before, but I know for me, I have been at times so embroiled, so involved in my social media presence, my existence. And I'll really focus on Instagram because that's been the Achilles heel for me, that I could not feel my life. I could, I did not feel tethered to my existence. My online life, the false self, because it is a false self, and I'll, I'll talk about that, of my online persona felt, at, felt more real, more important, more tangible than my real life. The depersonalization and the derealization were very, very real. And so was the profound emptiness in that. I was only as up as my latest post and how it did. And I was only <clears throat> as low as you know the low the the bad comment that i got or the the poor performance of of whatever post the up and the down and the up and the down and and there's and it's absolutely out of control um for so many reasons it's an algorithm uh it's it's not it's not really directly correlated to anything real so any real sense of value or any real sense of meaning, 
uh, it's a game. And it's a game that by definition works because we don't know the outcome. It's like a slot machine. You can read this if you, I have been reading about how that's why social, one of the reasons why social media is so addictive to us because if slot machines are addictive, not because you win sometimes, it's because you don't most of the time. It's because you don't know, it's the unknown. It's when you don't, you don't know when you're gonna win. So you pull and you pull and you pull and it's that not knowing, it's that maybe this time that keeps you pulling and pulling and pulling. <clears throat> Same with social media. It's that maybe this post is the one. <laughs> maybe this one will be huge. I might get connected with this person or that person. You know, the, the sort of specifics are a little bit different for everybody, especially if you use it for business reasons, but it's the maybe that keeps us going back and back and back. So, and, and that, and it feels real. It feels so real because I can look, I can also point to certain things that are, have become real in my life, certain relationships and certain connections that have become real because of social media that I can say, but there's this, that's, that's real. Yeah, but the experience as a whole is really not something that, it's, it's definitely not something that you can stand on. It's not something you can fall back onto as, as what, uh, what is called a true self, right? So another part of what was written in that, in that paragraph that Anna wrote, the antidote to the false self is the authentic self. Radical honesty is the way is a way to get there. It tethers us to our existence and makes us feel real in the world. It also lessens the cognitive load required to maintain all those lies, freeing up mental energy to live more spontaneously in the moment. Holy crap, there's so much in those what are three sentences. So much. I could do three podcasts just on that. <clears throat> but let's let's bring this back. Okay, so I get to this place. Uh, it got really bad in 2020, and it stayed pretty bad in 2021, where I, I would have told you that I am who I am on social media, that that is who I, am, who I am in real life. But of course that's not true. It can't be true. It cannot be true. It's not true for anyone. I don't care what they say. I'm very aware when you have 80,000 people potentially following you. And, and by the way, we know in the back of our minds subconsciously that it's the potential is the entire world <laughs> at any moment that could see what we are saying. There's no way you're not performing something. There's no way you're not editing yourself. Uh, unless you are a sociopath or a psychopath and you and you really don't care you don't have that part of your consciousness that is aware of these things you're gonna care you're gonna care and we're not stupid we shape our performances we shape our behavior to get to achieve a certain end and I'm not saying that people come out and outright lie but you tailor a message so you leave things out or you don't, you express things in a certain way. It's a certain skill you developed, uh, develop on, um, for being on social itself so that you can project, you can take any moment and based on how you present the picture, how you present the quote and how you write the caption that supports this overall image. And some people get much closer to reality than others, but it's never fully there, right? It's never fully there. 
There are all kinds of things that I would never say online that I feel that I might say in a trusted relationship or a conversation between me and say, you know, one of my friends or my boyfriend, because I, I can't, those are things I can't work out with 80,000 people. All my doubts, insecurities, questions, um, contradictions. And we don't, we don't allow for that stuff to take place on social media. So just by, by the nature of what it is, especially for someone who their person is the brand like me, it's this ever evolving sort of monster as I see it that, that feels very real. And by the way, there is a huge high to getting that, to getting the quick, immediate affirmation that you can get when something is received well. Of course there is, we're all drawn to that. And knowing that you might be able to do that, that you could do that at any moment. I have so many times unconsciously or consciously gone over to Instagram to post something when I didn't want, when I wasn't getting enough feedback or attention in my present moment, in the present moment or whatever I was feeling, I didn't want to feel, or I wanted to, you know, I wanted to manufacture a certain amount of whatever it is that I needed in the moment, feedback, attention, um, acknowledgement, <laughs> audience. Uh, I've done that probably millions of times at this point. Certainly I've done it over 3000 times because I have 3000 plus posts on that account. Okay, so there's this continual construction of a false self and upholding of a false self and feedback that you get from a false self. And again, by the way, this isn't all done in a mal for malicious reasons. It, I, I, I wasn't consciously doing this. To, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, honest, true, real effort that has gone behind that has gone behind my posts and got, or gone into my posts. And there's a lot of a lot of things that I worked out online uh, and with that community on social media, but th there is a very, very, very fine line and uh, between what is real and honest and I would say, quote unquote, good and what is feeding this false self, feeding this performance. And this is, this is where I close the loop on the beginning part of this share uh, where I, that part of me, that junior high part of me was totally activated. Who am I connected to? Who am I not connected to? How can I get this person to see me? How can I get this person to like me? How can I um, be seen as this way, right? How can I, if I say, how can I comment so that it's clear where I stand on this issue so that I can be seen in this certain way um, by, these, by certain people to uphold this image, even if that's not how I really feel. Or staying silent on something where I do have a a certain opinion because I am not willing to expose that part of my process, to expose that view because it's in conflict with what is feels safe for me to show. I mean, it this is this the the cognitive load required to manage this. I don't I can't even imagine. I have some ideas based on how I feel uh, you know, from being off of it for a few months. Chiefly that I used to need to nap every single day. I would wake up and basically fantasize about when I could get back into bed. And I rarely went a day without taking a nap. And now I'm not 
napping as much and I'm not fantasizing about sleeping. I might be tired. I might take a nap here and there, but I'm not just completely shut down, uh, which is, you know, a classic symptom of depression. Okay, so this constant sort of monitoring of oneself is the exact opposite of how the true self is characterized, being able to be spontaneous in the moment, having your feet tethered to where you are, um, sharing how you actually feel, and not editing, not performing. So I have this vision, right, of all these false selves interacting with false selves on social media. And it's a it's a, it's actually like a, some kind of horror movie or, well, we've all seen, I don't know if we've all seen, but a lot of us have probably seen Black Mirror. If you haven't, you might want to go back and watch there's an episode about social media. And that came out several years ago. And I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, that is really eerie. And it feels way too true now. So this is a concept I'm playing with, this Ra this this concept of true self versus false self. And for me, being disconnected to my false self to such a degree that <laughs> there was no there there is what ultimately led me to, I believe, getting into a severe alcohol addiction. Um, and... It was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced, having to crawl out of that. And again, faced with it in a different way with social media, but the feelings are exactly the same. The behaviors are very much the same. The rationalizations and the bargaining and the, you know, trying to apply arbitrary rules in order to stop my use and negotiating and justifying and all those things are exactly the same as my process of getting sober. And I can see underneath all of it now is this really kind of tender, beautiful, true self trying to fight its way back through. And as as a person who had to go through the process of, I guess we could say, reclaiming the true self or building up the true self or being comfortable with my true self. And I am, I am, I really am. Uh, I had that to fall back on. I know what that felt like. So I could, I could, it wasn't that I had to do all of the same digging again. It's just, I had to being away, being off of social for even a couple of weeks, it was like, oh, right, here I am. Here I am. This is what's real. And the anxiety turned down significantly. The depression turned down significantly. And I didn't have to go through that whole process again. But it's still, it. it is as... It is as big and as scary of a false self. The allure is there, right? Because the, being that false self has a big payoff, has a big payoff uh, outwardly. And, and, you know, we feel like it's connected to our success in the world, to our success with other people, to our connections with others and all of that. So it's a very real draw. But... Um, but there is no there, there. There is no there, there for me. So I will, I will end this episode just with that. I, I, I want to provide a few caveats, I suppose. I recognize that other people's experience is not mine. Uh, this, is, this is really about my experience. And if it's something that you resonate with or that feels true to you, then great. Uh, but I'm really working out what's what's going on with me. I have definitely, the, the pieces that I've written, written on social media, when I share them through my newsletter, I get more responses than any other topic. So I, I know that I'm not totally alone here. 
Um, but this isn't me saying everyone should get off social media. I know that's not realistic, uh, nor do I think that that's true for everyone. Just like I don't think it's true that everyone needs to stop drinking. This is how it affects me. And yeah, it's just my experience. The other thing is I totally recognize that I'm in a position now. I have built up enough of a, I have a, a healthy newsletter list. I have a company with the luckiest club. I have a community there. I have uh, a book out in the world already and a contract to write a second and third book that I'm in a position where I can step back from social media. There are people out there like Cal Newport and many others actually who will say that the, the idea that you need social media in order to be a successful author or a successful business person is, is absolutely not true. And in fact, it is totally counterproductive. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it really depends on the type of business that you're trying to create. I think I, I think it absolutely just depends. But I want to acknowledge that I'm in a position where I can step away now. And I don't I don't know the effect that it will have on my professional life. I, I really don't. But um, I will see. I will I will report on that as time goes on. It's been I've been off since April. I had a little relapse that I wrote about uh, when I went on vacation in July where I was on for two days. I basically I felt like I had gone out and drank two bottles of vodka and slept with a stranger and all of those things that were that that would have been akin to an alcohol relapse. I felt that level of hangover and anxiety afterwards. And since then, I've been out. Um, I actually deactivated my Instagram account. I don't have a fa I don't have that Facebook page has been gone for a long time. So I'm aside from being on LinkedIn, which I rarely ever use, and I feel like I only need to have it up there because of my company. Um, I'm I'm off. So we'll see how it plays out. We'll see how it affects my my work. Uh, we'll see, and I'll report on that as time goes on. One thing I didn't. I, one thought I. I forgot to add in and I wanted to, I want to talk about. So I noticed there's this part of what I, I've been talking about through this whole thing and part of the anxiety I felt in junior high and high school and that I have always really felt is this very acute awareness of social connections, being in or out, in-group stuff versus out-group stuff. and. This is human nature. It's very real. Some people care more than others. I am wired to care. I'm wired to notice. I am wired to, I, I care a lot less. Getting sober required me to not care nearly as much as I used to. And I have gotten a lot healthier around that, but it's still in there. And like I said, being on social media really brought out the most insecure. It felt, it brought out all the junior high stuff and it brought it out on full blast. And a really good example of it uh, came up actually last week. Someone sent me a post that the holistic psych psychologist, you might follow uh, her on Instagram. I haven't, I used to follow her a long time ago and then I didn't, I don't know why I stopped following. I just did. Um, and I'm not, this isn't, this isn't a comment on her. It's more a comment on this dynamic and it underscores sort of everything that I'm saying in this episode. So she's a psychologist. Uh, she's a, a massive following, four million plus. Uh, she's put out a ton of information that I think has really elevated the general, she's, she's brought psychological concepts uh, to the mainstream and presented what I think is at its base very helpful information for people to start talking about things like trauma and uh, other other psychological concepts that really, unless you are in therapy or you've studied them, you wouldn't know about. So I think in that in that sense, there's a lot of there's a, some positive stuff there. Okay, what 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 was fascinating to me, and it's just a perfect example of of this stuff is. 
she posted about a new relationship that she's in with her wife and another woman, a thruple, new word for me. I didn't know that that was a word. And great. That's, that's a whole other thing. This sort of, where's the line between what we need to know about people and what we don't and how much is too much and why does it matter and, and all of that. Okay. But we'll put that aside for another day. There's, she put up this, this, uh, post about this being in this thruple and that it's this great experience. And, and she, the, the interesting thing was what came out a few days later. And that's what was sent to me. It was a post that was commenting on the reactions to her announcement of this relationship. And she says, I, you know, I lost 20,000 followers that day. I was emotionally prepared for these, these reactions, people not understanding, people shaming me, whatever. What is really troublesome to me is at the end of her caption, she writes, this space, her page, her Instagram account is for the courageous warriors willing to go inwards. This space is for the courageous warriors. Meaning, if you aren't courageous, if you are not willing to go inward, if you had a reaction to my post about my relationship, if that was negative, say, or, or not fully supportive, fully understanding, if you, it kind of reminded me, I saw this post a long time ago where, where this woman posted a picture of her boobs and then on online on Instagram and then chastise people for commenting on the picture of her boobs. Like how dare you look and how dare you have an opinion about the picture that I posted of my boobs. What kind of sick psycho are you? She was talking to men in that case. I was like, okay, interesting, interesting. This kind of reminded me of that. It's like, oh, you had a reaction to my post about my relationship. Well, and it was coded in all the psychological language because she's very smart. And she's leading a entire, you could, you could say she's leading an entire movement of, as she calls it, self-healers. She has 4 million people. And, and at the end of this post that's cloaked in all this psychological language, she says, this space is the one for the courageous warriors willing to go inward. And then one of her, you know, who doesn't want to be in on the courageous warrior camp? Who doesn't want to be someone who's willing to go inward and, and quote unquote, do the work? I'm not a psychologist, but that seems extraordinarily manipulative and, and, and gaslighty. That is major in-group, out-group stuff. And shame. There's lots of shaming language in there. And what we do when we see a post like that is we see, we don't just see the post itself, of course, we see who commented and what they said. And we absorb all of that information. Uh, and, and that informs not just how we, it's so persuasive to get us to be at a place to perform being at a place where we may not be yet to present a false self. I have done it hundreds of times, hundreds of times, because I want her to see that I'm supportive of whatever, that I, that I have this view that I think will be very popular and endearing to her and people who might follow her when in fact I might not really even know how I feel about this thing yet because that's the normal human response okay and I'm not even talking about her topic just just anything okay 
Um, one of her commenters said, that's okay. Hey, there's 20,000 people who are unwilling to do the work. <laughs> like, man. And this is what we see all the fuck over social media all the time. We can't possibly manage this many connections. I also became acquainted with a concept called Dunbar's number, which is, um, I won't go too far into, but it is supposedly, the, the number is 150, and it's the number of connections we can actually handle, the number of social connections we can actually manage and handle cognitively. And, you know, we're not meant to handle, if, we're, if 150 is the max, you, gotta, you go onto an account like that, and it's 4 million. It's just mind melty. And yet we feel like we should be able to handle it. How can that not change who we are? How can that not change who she is? How can that not change? How can that not lead to a, a presentation of false selves, many false selves? And no wonder so many of us feel empty. There's no there there. We feel depressed. We feel anxious, but we can't really name why. I think this is a major reason why. It certainly, it certainly is for me. All right. I will leave it at that. This has been fun. I would love to know what you think. Um, I would love to know what you think. Not not just about the topic, which I definitely want to know, um, but about, you know, these solo episodes and what works, what doesn't. Uh, you can, we, we have regular conversations about the episodes on our community at, you can go to tmstpod.com. There's a, you can click on community and it's a free community and it's really fun. We do this thing called NGP Fridays, Non-Guilty Pleasure Fridays, where we talk about shows and music and other media that we're into. Uh, and we have some, we do, we show the playlist for every episode, which we create playlists for every episode. I guess I will be creating one for this. We do all kinds of really, it just, it's, it's, it's a good place on the internet. <laughs> it's away from Facebook. It's away from Instagram. It's just a community for this podcast. So I would love to know what you think. I would love to know all of it. Um, what works? What doesn't? Do you share this experience? Did anything I say today make sense to you? All right. Thank you for being here. Until next time. Mm -hmm.